1: Welcome to House of Wrestling everybody. It's me Nick Hausman and boy am I excited to present this conversation with you all today. Here sitting by the fireplace in the living room in the house is our very good friend, labor lawyer Lucas Middlebrook. Lucas, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me here today.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on, Nick.
1: Well, it's been a couple of years here since we got to uh, catch up last, Lucas, and uh, I know you've seen some of what I tweet on social media now and you made me a smarter man when it comes to unionization. <laughs> I, I will say that. So, unfortunately for the pro wrestling community, if you want to have a smart chat about unionizing and how that works, <laughs> I know how it goes these days. Um, now, let's start real quick on what we were chatting about last time. Um, I know that Leslie Smith, 2018, filed the complaint. You guys went through the attempted unionization process with the NLRB under Trump. Obviously, it didn't pan out the way you guys wanted. Has there been any movement, uh, on the unionization front Outside of this class action lawsuit for, for UFC fighters under the Biden Administrations in LRB
2: No not that I'm Not that I am aware of uh, I'm not aware of an active organizing drive uh, In the UFC or, or Any NLRB complaints being Filed uh, with respect to the UFC Uh, Right now, there's a lot going on outside of the UFC in terms of unionizing uh, industry-wide, and the NLRB is taking a very pro-labor stance on a a number of different issues, uh, including trying to crack down on uh, misclassification as independent contractors, uh, but nothing specific to, to the UFC or professional fighting that I'm aware of right now.
1: Do you think now we're going to do this, this class action lawsuit now. Do you think that this could be something that triggers their attention? I don't really know if that's how this works. (laughs) You know, like, do they, do they see what's going on here with this class action suit and say, Hmm, maybe we should be poking around about how these people are being classified in the UFC right now.
2: Yeah. I'm not sure if the NLRB would, would be following the class action filings and, and taking that much of an interest. Uh, if Listen, if someone filed uh, an NLRB charge alleging that, that the UFC had violated the National Labor Relations Act by misclassification alone, then the general counsel may take interest in, in a filing such as that, because uh, that's actually one of the issues on the top of, of her list, uh, which which was uh, undoing the case law under Velo Express, uh, where back under the Trump administration, uh, the NLRB was actually prosecuting a case uh based just on that that misclassifying someone as an independent contractor in and of itself could be a labor law violation under the nlra uh and and uh there there's there's other cases out there that are testing testing that so i would think that that would be of something of interest but not unless someone filed filed the charge the nlrb is not going to do it on its own
1: so uh, i'm looking at this this class action lawsuit here Uh, It's for fighters, it looks like, between 2010 and 2017 that fit the pool. It's about 1,200 fighters here. And Mm -hmm. it smells a lot, kind of like the case that you and Leslie were making to the NLRB about how these fighters are being treated and classified. What's the difference between what you and Leslie were doing and then what this, this class action suit, I guess, is trying to accomplish?
2: Yeah, no, that's a good question because there certainly are differences. Uh, so the class action was brought under the Sherman antitrust uh, law, uh, which which regulates competitive behavior in the United States. It's a, it's a federal law. And the allegation is that the UFC engaged in anti-competitive behavior in violation of that act. And so the class action really seeks two things. Uh, one, which seems to remain unsettled after the decision, uh, but injunctive relief. So essentially, forcing the UFC to change its anti-competitive behavior uh, through a court saying you must change your contracts or whatever, whatever it may be, and and two would be the monetary damages that they believe are owed to the class members, like you mentioned in that relevant time period, uh, which in the decision they estimate could be anywhere from roughly eight hundred million to one point six billion dollars, uh, and and that all comes from. Uh, if you read the decision, the anti-competitive behavior for which it's alleged the UFC engaged in ha- had the effect of suppressing fighter wages. And, and so, it, you know, the expert witnesses and the economists, they use regression models and things of that nature uh, to, to come up with an estimated damage uh, amount. And that's, that was the range that you saw in, in the decision. Whereas what, what Leslie was trying to do was was unionize the, the fighters. And the first step in that approach was uh, th- that they are actually employees, despite being classified as independent contractors, eligible to unionize. So so Leslie's was more of a unionization, go forward approach, uh, whereas this is remedying the anti-competitive behaviors of the past, uh, both in monetary and, and maybe in some sort of injunctive relief where the court says you have to change XYZ uh, in order to comply with the law. Do you see
1: this case possibly uh resulting in the fighters being reclassified as employees because if they're going to force it sounds like the ufc to change their practices is part of that reclass i mean are you going to get a similar result i guess is what i'm pushing at here uh to what you guys were fighting for
2: no no not it could be a hard no on that actually um Uh, because it really has the finding between independent contractor and employee status in the context of this class action uh, really is not, not something that's at issue. Uh, And and in fact, down the road without getting too complicated, if you have a unionized workforce uh, with it, with a collective bargaining agreement in place, there is something actually referred to as the non-statutory labor exemption to the Sherman antitrust act. So that when you are in a collective bargaining relationship, you actually have some exemptions from that federal law in terms of anti-competitive behavior. Uh, and so, if the fighters were to unionize on a go-forward approach, it, it may it may actually uh, provide the UFC some sort of an exemption from the Sherman Antitrust Act. Now, that wouldn't relieve them of paying monetary damages for conduct that's already been done in the past. Uh, but but if if the fighters unionize. Right, that that could be a product of, of that result, which is there's a less of a focus on the antitrust. And the reason being is because the fighters now have an opportunity to collectively bargain their their compensation and their benefits and things of that nature.
1: Yeah, because it kind of just feels like this is just a one a one off coming to the table. Right. It's like after this class action suit, whatever falls out is going to fall out. But there's no kind of consistent follow up, which is what would be kind of the next step that that you and Leslie envision. Right.
2: Right. And, and, and listen, if it's successful, it could it could result in in payment to the fighters. Right. We talked about the damage awards. Uh, maybe it could change some of the anti-competitive behavior of the UFC. And I think one of the most important things that it could do for the fighters is it could create an actual free agency where it, if you read the decision, there was practices that the UFC engaged in or allegedly engaged in uh, coercive conduct. Uh, in addition to the the contracts the exclusive contracts that they were in uh, having the fighters sign but they engaged in coercive contact which which effectively kept the fighters from from ever testing free agency uh mm-hmm. except maybe on the very very tail end of their career right so by by being unable to test the free agent market so to speak and and check out bellator or uh, or PFL now, uh, you know, then they weren't able to actually uh, recognize their true market value and therefore were being underpaid vis-a-vis the UFC because they were being kept in these long-term, uh, almost endless contracts.
0: And
1: and see, that's the thing is, so let's get into how this kind of ties into pro wrestling a little bit because with WWE, most talents will sign a three, five-year deal, right? It's very rare to, to see like those 10, 20-year deals like we kind of saw at certain points in the Attitude Era. In your mind, does that make them less predatory to what the UFC has been doing with their fighters? Because there is free agency in pro wrestling. And we have AEW and WWE right now. People let their contracts come up and then they try to leverage more money from the other promotion. That's how it's going these
2: days, you know. It does create a bit of a distinction. Uh, You know, if, if you read through the decision, there was really three major components where the judge found, you know, that. Uh, based on a preponderance of the evidence, the UFC engaged in this conduct and and therefore made it made the, uh, the fighters eligible for class certification. And it was really threefold that the judge said you had enforcement of, of these exclusionary contracts, which was during the period enforcement of the contract. You cannot fight anywhere else. Right. But the UFC. Now, I know that in WWE, they contain similar provisions during the life of the contract. Right, the exclusion, the exclusionary uh, piece of that. Now, in addition to that, those contracts had certain clauses. The UFC had certain clauses that the judge called out in his decision uh, regarding the class certification, which were they had certain tolling provisions that would extend the contracts uh, in and of themselves by you know by the provision itself, which were if you were suffered an injury and were unable to fight, it would toll the contract for a period of time if you refused to accept opponents that the ufc proposed to you that could toll the contract for a period of time and if you became a champion that would either toll the contract i think it was for three fights uh or a year whichever was whichever was um whichever occurred first uh and so they had they had the ability of the ufc through the contract to extend the contracts the exclusionary contracts even further uh then what they found was second, in addition to these contracts uh, and how they excluded the fighters from from fighting for other entities, they actually engaged in what the judge referred to as coercive conduct. And some of this conduct was they they would they would either put you on the shelf for a period of time, not give you a fight. Uh, and so, you know, you could go a year and because you're being paid below market wages, right, a lot of fighters can't go for that prolonged period of time without fighting. They need the money. Right. Uh, or. Or uh, if you didn't agree, let's say you were on a four-fight deal, there was uh, the decision talked about where the UFC would come to you uh, leading up to the third fight or on the third fight, offer you to renegotiate your deal, uh, and if negotiations didn't go well, then they would offer you an opponent, a very tough opponent, and put you on the prelims where you weren't going to be seen a lot, uh, and if you turn that down, now because you've turned down a fight, well, the tolling provisions kick into the contract, and they extend even further. Right. And so the judge really put time periods that the contracts could be in place uh, and they actually coincided almost um, almost exactly with the average with the average length of a fighter's career. And so what the judge was saying is that by the time these contracts effectively were done, the fighter's career was was also coming to completion at that point where they whereas they couldn't really test a legitimate free agency until they were on the tail end of their career, thereby further depressing Wages, and then the third piece of that, Nick, was that they that the UFC engaged in in anti competitive behavior uh, by essentially buying up its competitors. Yeah, uh, right. So so not not only were they locking fighters into these contracts, right, but the there was there was no competition out there that could pay the fighters anything <laughs> different than the UFC. And so, in addition to the contracts, the competition was stifled, and therefore, you had you had this perfect storm of of depression of of fighter compensation where where it otherwise may have been uh, in a free market.
1: Man, it is tough not to look past the similarities, right? Vince McMahon buys WCW. There's a uh, relative 18 year period there where there is no dominant competition because Vince bought even before that, right? All the territories, right? It was used to be. 20-something companies that ran per wrestling. And Vince, one by one, picked them all up, made WWE. Next guy came along, he bought them too. Now, Tony Khan, the clock is ticking, right? So, like, you can obviously see that third point there, the similarities in the marketplace. Because that's Vince's MO, just buy whoever the competition is, right? But the other one, the second point about extending uh, contracts, and man, I was getting all kind of jittery here listening to you talk about it, because there are similarities with that in WWE as well. When people... Uh, and a W for what it's worth. People get injured or if creatively you don't like what's going on and refuse to go to work, they'll extend your contract. Right. So if you get injured or if you just don't like like hypothetically, let's say somebody pitches something really racist to you. Right. And you're like, I'm not effing doing that. and They're like, fine, go home, wait until the next thing. And then maybe we can start your contract up again. You know, there, there's obviously similarities here. Do you see this opening the door? for a similar class action case uh, on behalf of WWE performers.
2: It's listen, it's possible, right? You you know, you would have to examine the facts. I mean, there are similarities and I've noticed this really for years since I've been involved in both industries to some extent. Right. There are similarities in the contracts without a doubt, right? The exclusivity provisions, the provisions you mentioned about tolling, um and, and so you would have to take a look at right the facts on the ground and also potentially maybe the anti-competitive behavior in the marketplace you know buying up competitors just like the UFC did with Strike Force and Pride back in the day right um you know w- which then allowed the UFC and this is actually one interesting part of the decision where it it allowed them to control the amount of revenue percentage revenue share that the fighters were getting and the decision actually places that in the operative time period Between 2012 and 2015 at anywhere between 16 and 19 percent of total revenue was all that was going to the fighters. And then the decision, interestingly enough, also references um, material from the that put out by the UFC that that in order to remain successful, uh, their goal was to keep fighter revenue share under 20 percent. Right. right. And, and you always contrast that. You know, people like to contrast that with some of the other major professional sports, right? Whereas you know, maybe the NBA is, is a good comparator where the players actually get 51% of the revenue um, through collective bargaining, right? So, I, hate I, mean, to cu- you- I hate
1: to cut you off, but you know, WWE, it's like not anywhere near that percentage, right? Like the combined what the wrestlers are getting versus what WWE is making. And don't quote me for gospel here, but I think it's like less than 10%, if I'm not mistaken.
0: So,
2: right. Right, I, it's a big deal. Right, it's a big deal, and that's why these major athlete unions, whether it's in baseball or basketball or football, right, they're they're always pushing for a big a big share of the revenue, which they're entitled to, in my opinion, because right, they're the labor they're the labor that creates the product, uh, you know, that that you're watching, just like in the WWE, right, and so to think that they're only getting that small of a share of the revenue, uh, it's disturbing to me. Uh, I can imagine it. it it's only uh, as much more disturbing to the performers themselves. So uh, as we're
1: talking about these similarities, it's not like these two companies are going to live in a bubble that much longer. Uh, come next month, they're going to be part of TKO Group Holdings. They're going to be under the same umbrella. Does that change the dynamic at all? Because now it's not just the UFC. It's UFC and WWE. They're a company together. Does the judge, does the judge, can the judge look at this and say, wow, your pool of people, uh, just got larger because I see a lot of similarities within the company for other performers that are not just UFC performers.
2: Probably not in this, in the context of the, of the pending class action, because that's going to be based on the opposite set of facts for when they certified the class, right? The time sure. period that, that you were previously uh, talking about. Uh, but, you know, back to your previous question was, could this provide a vehicle? A- and again, it would just, it would have to be someone taking a look at the facts, right? Finding the right class counsel. Uh, and then deciding, you know, whether it was worth filing in the context of, of Sherman antitrust. Now, you know, the one downside here, Nick, uh, is that in the context of, of, of this action, justice has not moved swiftly. Right. I mean, this was filed back in, I believe 2014 was, yeah. was when they first filed this action in the Northern district of California, I believe before it got transferred to Vegas. And so, you know, this thing has been going on for quite some time, and, uh, and, Class certification is a big deal. Right. Uh, I mean, they had the hearing. They filed for class certification, I believe, back in 2018. They had the hearings in 2019. And here we are right now just getting our decision. Now they were waiting, they being the court and the parties, they were waiting on a decision that was pending in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, that will that have guided a, uh, an issue on class certification. So to some extent, they were waiting on case law to develop. And once that case law was finalized in the Ninth Circuit, they went ahead with this decision. Now, like, this is a big deal. My guess is the UFC will appeal. They have 14 days under the federal rules of civil procedure to appeal a class certification decision to up to the Ninth Circuit. And what's 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 unique about that is typically you have to wait until a final order to appeal like you have to wait in essence for the case to be complete to take it upstairs but in the context of class certification it gives you the right to appeal that decision in and of itself directly to the ninth ninth circuit so my my guess is we will see, we will see that filing here within the next week or so from the ufc attorneys and and uh tested at the ninth circuit uh and and all of that could go on uh, you know for again for months potentially years uh before you know that they will typically. You don't stay the underlying action while you appeal. They could request that the the UFC, uh, but it's not granted as of right. But but you're still looking at a period of time before they get to trial and and get a decision. Uh, so it, it doesn't it doesn't turn quickly here.
1: Yeah, I I believe that the class. I believe it was on the tenth August 10th that the uh, the that it was I that the clock started on those 14 days. So we might be within 72 hours of finding that out here. Interesting, right? That. Um, yeah, and I
2: would be shocked if they didn't file a 23F appeal. Shocked.
1: Um, last question here, Lucas, while I have you. Uh, and thank you. Again, this was, like, very, very informative, and I got a lot out of this conversation, as I always do with you. Um, now, the UFC is owned by Endeavor, right? And, our, and now, as much as we want to talk about Dana White and his practices, Dana White has people over him as well as Ari Emanuel. From your perspective, what what if, what – what do you think wrestling fans should expect from the way Ari Emanuel thinks about talent and, and and treats the people kind of working underneath him?
2: I am, and I I hate to be too harsh, uh, but but I I think the best way to describe it is their line items. Yeah, right. Their line items on a on a, on a budget sheet, on a balance sheet, a, as opposed to you know labor, labor that drives the revenue. Mm-hmm. Right, they're a are a cost, just like a performance cost, or 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 setting, you know, a venue cost, or whatever it may be. They're a cost, and you know, even the judge in the class action and the UFC referenced the fact that there was a goal to keep those costs under twenty percent of the total revenue. Right, right. So, so you're simply you're treated as a line item, uh, as opposed to potentially being able to recognize your true worth in terms of the the value that you bring in the context of your labor uh, to, to, the, to the entity. Uh, and so unfortunately we, you know, if there is that type of, um, uh, you know, merger, whatever you want to call it or, or purchase, uh, or combination of the groups, I, I wouldn't expect improvement, uh, in, in the context of, uh, of, um, of the entertainer's plight, uh, going forward. I mean, we've seen it with the UFC. It, it doesn't, it doesn't improve, uh, in terms of, of, of fighter treatment, fighter compensation. It is, it has remained this way for for many years, uh, and that's of course why why Leslie Smith was pushing so hard for unionization because she she saw this class action and, and early on in her career she was involved in that as well, um, and and but but she always looked a little further because she she wanted uh, in in addition to potentially uh, damages and injunctive relief she wanted it, she wanted the full CBA. she wanted health insurance she wanted retirement benefits. Right. She wanted the ability to collectively bargain for all of that, and so uh, you know, going going forward, I wouldn't expect much better from from the individuals that have been running the UFC for these for these years. Yikes! All
1: right. Well, hey, Lucas. On a well, I guess we're ending on a positive note. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Uh, is there uh, any anything you want to? I don't know. I don't know what you you. I don't think you have things to promote. I don't know. Is there anything you want people to know <laughs> about before we wrap it up here today?
2: No, nah, no promotions for me. Just uh, you know it's something both in the WWE and the UFC that that I've been passionate about now for for many years. Uh, I believe that the that the employees uh, uh, that are called independent contractors are underpaid uh, in the in the context of of their compensation but also their benefits. Uh, I do think I think now would be the time, as I've said before, under this NLRB. To, to unionize and, and better those. Uh, but I know that there's a lot of fear and trepidation in both entities that, that come along with that. Uh, but at some point, you know, someone's going to have to be that, that person that steps up and, and makes a change to take, to take it into closer what you see in other professional sports in other entertainment industries as well, right? We see a giant strike going on right now with, with SAG and the Writers Guild and, uh, and, you know, and these are entertainers and these are performers uh, and they, they are on the picket line now to try to improve, to improve their compensation and benefits. And that is something right, that, that that collective strength is that solidarity is trying to improve. Uh, and it's something that both of these groups right, could do right, collectively with that solidarity if they, take that, if they take that next step. But this class action decision is a good first step. Uh, in the context of maybe uh, uh, um, shepherding in some of this anti competitive behavior and this restrictive behavior in these contracts for these fighters, uh, with, without a doubt, I mean, it's a big deal.
1: And we are.